Before we get into today's podcast, if you're in Japan, worried about someone else, and think their life may be in immediate danger, you can call 119 for ambulance or 110 to reach police. Once again, that's 119 for ambulance or 110 to reach police. In order for emergency services to act, you'll need to provide their name, phone number, and their address. If you're located outside Japan and concerned that someone living in Japan may be in immediate danger, you can call 03-3501-0110. Once again, that's 03-3501-0110. They're available Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 5.15 p.m. Japanese time. Outside of these hours, try to look up and call a police station near that person's location and ask for Tsuyaku. That means translation, tsuyaku, to make a report if you cannot speak Japanese. Unfortunately, Tell Lifeline is not able to make these calls for you. But I guess the message that I would like to get across is that there is hope and that somebody who has depression or anxiety, there's treatment options out there and people do get better. They get better all the time. Okay, Teresa Green and I got Vicky Scorgia here. And thank you for taking time to talk with me today. Thank you. Thank you and for speaking about this topic. Yes, it's a, we'll, we'll get into that and I'll probably get emotional. It's a very important topic to, to me and, and I'm sure a lot of other people. So um, Lifeline Services Director at Tokyo English Lifeline. Um, now I've printed out some history, but I think you can tell it better. Okay. Um, okay. Tokyo English Lifeline, please tell me. Well, we're now called Tell. Okay. And we were started by a group of churches and missionaries to provide that support to the foreign community. We came out of uh, Inochi no Denwa, which is the Japanese lifeline. Mm. We started about uh, 12 months after them. And this year, actually on April 1st, will be our 50th anniversary. So on April 1st, 1973, we took our first calls. And here we are taking calls today. And throughout that time, we have not missed a single day. So we weren't always the same amount of hours. But the, so in 1973, we were eight hours a day, and now we're around 14 hours a day. And on April 1st, we will go 24 hours on the weekend. It has always been our desire to be 24 hours, but that requires a lot of foreign foreigners to help be volunteers, and foreigners are always coming and going. So the pool of volunteers that we have working on the line comes and goes, right? Okay. However, technology is helping us find new ways of recruiting and keeping people. Mm. So there's the Lifeline. We started in 1973, and we initially were Tokyo-based. Now we are able to recruit people right around the country, and so we're no longer just in Tokyo. But in 1991, we expanded to provide face-to-face counselling, and that's our clinic. So the Lifeline, if you like, finds the people that are maybe in crisis or having challenges in their day-to-day life. Maybe they need resources, maybe they need counselling, and that is not something, that ongoing counselling is not something that the lifeline can do it's more that immediate crisis support and that's where the clinic came in and they provide that professional well initially face-to-face to could be online counseling support services and that in japan in itself having qualified um specialized 
therapists and counsellors is something that's still undergoing a development, if you like. So that's why we created um, Tell Counselling, so that we knew that everybody that was there was fully licensed and qualified, that they were keeping their licence up to date, and we could recommend the state of service or the quality of service that we were providing to the community. And then, if you like, um, we expanded in the last decade or so to provide outreach. So that is where we might go out and do a talk in the community, where we might have fundraising events, where we're creating awareness about vulnerable populations, educating people about mental health issues and how to support someone. So we are not just a lifeline. So we're not just Tokyo English Lifeline. We are not um, just in Tokyo. While the, uh, the Lifeline provides services in English, because there is in Ochino Denwa the Japanese Lifeline providing services in Japanese. Our clinic provides services in multiple languages and our outreach services are in multiple languages. So we're not just in Tokyo, we're not just a Lifeline and we're not just English. So we're Tell. So now it's Tell, okay. And, and when did that name change take place? On our 40th anniversary. Okay, ten, so I'm only 10 years behind. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And I see at, at one point you started... Um, uh, let's see, 1993 Tell HIV AIDS mm. crisis line was integrated into? Yeah. So maybe I can talk a little bit about that. Mm. So across the years, Tell has been one of those organizations that has been trying to deliver best practices in mental health and supporting those vulnerable populations and taking that knowledge that we might have in some of our home countries. So I'm from Australia, but we've had many people at Tell from the US or the UK or parts of Europe and bringing that knowledge of mental health services and how to support vulnerable populations to Japan. If we could share that information, it's been one of those things that I think Tell has been really good at over the years. So there have been those moments when we were um, setting up... um, the helping the Shanghai Lifeline uh, start itself up, helping to create the a Filipina Lifeline here in Japan, helping the creation of the HIV line, um, and supporting those um, individuals to um, delivering psychological first aid following the Tohoku earthquake, and that is, and we ro- we modified that to. Um, deliver that in Japanese and we had our therapists then go up and train Inochino Denwa uh, volunteers in Miyagi, Fukushima, Iwate, uh, all across Tohoku and then they went and trained other people in the community in these skills so that you could better support people who'd been impacted by disasters rather than going up there and helping, which a lot of people would do, and they still do in disasters, but more often than not, our intention to do good, we do more damage. So mm-hmm. how, to, how to deliver that, those supports? And that has now actually been rolled out by the Japanese government as best practices in supporting someone who has been um, impacted by a disaster. And those very skills were used again to help support the... to help to support sorry, to help support Ukrainian evacuees that have come into the country and ensure that, well, not ensure, but hopefully give them some skills so that they can better adjust and be more resilient in Japan. Mm -hmm. So those 
opportunities that have come along where we could help share that knowledge, I think tellers always played that key role. Amazing. <laughs> Simply amazing. Yes, yes. So um, now how did you get involved in Tell? Hmm. Like many people, I came to Japan as a, um, a trailing spouse. My background is in psychology and neuropsychology, but when I came to Asia 20 years ago, that field really didn't exist here. And online supervision or um, being able to keep your skills up to date was not possible or keep your license up to date was not possible, so I lost that license. So I couldn't practice in that area and became very... mm, unhappy. I was one of those people that was not happy with that transition to come to a foreign country. And in 2004, somebody invited me to undertake the lifeline counselling as a volunteer. At that point, I had sworn that I was never going to go anywhere near counselling again. I did undertake that training. It did change me. It did opened my eyes to the issues that many people were struggling with in Japan, both foreigners and the Japanese. It's where I first encountered the notion of just how high the suicide rates were at that time in Japan and how many people were dying. I think it was 100 people a day. I found that figure phenomenal. I learnt um, a lot of great skills. I found people that were wanting to do good in the community and that grounded me. I was never going to be in Japan that long and here I am all those years later, not just I've been a volunteer, I've trained volunteers on the lifeline, I then went back and got a second master's where I could practice here in Japan. I was a clinician for a number of years and gave my hours for free and in 2013 I gave up that practice again to become the Lifeline Director. Right. Sure. So if you d- if you were worried about somebody in Japan and you wanted to get the police involved, you're going to... It's not perhaps like uh, the situation in Australia or the US or other countries. You're going to need to know their telephone number and you're going to need to know a name and an address before the police can go out. Mm-hmm. And you're going to need perhaps some support to have that translated into Japanese Mm -hmm. because while Tokyo or some of the other larger uh, metropolitan police stations may have English language support if they're in some of those rural areas that's not going to be available got it okay great great so one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is last year I had a friend who committed suicide Mm -hmm. and um really sorry to hear that I'm going to get emotional already (laughs) but um so we were we were friends we're both uh doing um let's see his widow asked us not to talk about the details, so I'll just say mm. he was a friend. And um, he had some health issues. Mm. And he sought medical help for those medical issues, mm. and uh, that was not successful. And he, his health declined, mm. which meant his uh, um, career declined as well. Mm. And I saw him about two weeks before he committed suicide. Mm. And you know he didn't look healthy, you know. And and he talked and he said that there were there's a history of suicide in his family. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I I just thought naively, 
I thought, well, he's telling me, which means he's not going to do it. And I, I know nothing about suicide. Right. Mm. And um, only the second time in my life I've come into contact with somebody. And the first time I was a child and my cousin's boyfriend, I want to say. Mm. And and I, I was too young to remember him. And so it didn't really impact me. Like, mm. like of course, this did. A friend of mine. And... Um, uh, but my my friend had some things um, that uh, you know we're we're both in. Um, uh, let's see, a, a business where we would need certain equipment, mm-hmm. and he told me he was upgrading his equipment and he had some things to sell, mm-hmm. N- which now I know is a red flag. So I went to see him. I I I bought the equipment and uh, we sat outside his house and um, we just talked. Just like friends, mm-hmm. and then, uh, and I asked him. I said, "Like, why do you need to get rid of this?" He said, "Well, I'm, I'm upgrading." Mm-hmm. You know? So I said, "Okay, fine," because because I, I had a vague idea. I'd heard people start to get rid of belongings before they commit suicide. So, um, and and I asked him, uh, and then he told me, "I'm upgrading uh, my equipment, so I don't need this anymore. It's just getting in the way." And so I just believe that, and maybe I wanted to believe it, and then. Um, we, we sat outside his house and he, he turned around and pointed behind him. He said, that's my house that I'm probably going to lose. Hmm. Said, okay, that doesn't sound good. So he, he was a, a, a good friend. So when I left, I gave him a big hug and I said, hey, man, I love you. Hmm. And I don't care what time it is. Hmm. Call me. Hmm. Anytime. Hmm. Whatever you need. You know. And then we joked. I said, but I'm not rich, so don't ask me for money. <laughs> hmm. I mean, he, he had a much better income than me when he was in his prime. And um, and uh, I I, um, I think I have that gallows humor, you know, where I, I, I tend to throw humor in uh, probably at inappropriate times. Or, or and, and he's a friend, you know, so I could I could say this. I said, anything you need except money. But I still would have given money hmm. if he needed it. But um, anything you need, anytime, you know, I won't tell anybody. And because uh, we had a lot of friends in common. And um, a couple weeks later, I got a call from a friend, uh, from a mutual friend, um, in the same line of work, and um, I, I didn't want to answer it because I had asked this guy for a favor and he'd turned me down. <laughs> so I thought, oh, he, he probably wants something from me now. So I, I just, I'm not going to answer that. And then he called again. I thought, oh, he's persistent. So I called back and he he told me the news, and um, and and we. A group of us. We have a, a line group. Line is the uh, chat program that people, or application people use in Japan. We have a, a group of friends. We have a line group that we were all in, and we started talking. Like, hey, what do you know? What did you hear? What do you know? And we all started to put the pieces together, and we all had a separate piece. Hmm. And um, I found out a lot more that, and I just thought, wow, why didn't we share this with each other? You know, hmm. because, and I think, and it didn't even occur to me to to call tell or to refer him to tell hmm. or anything like that because naively I thought if he's talking about it he's not going to do it and um, and I shared an experience I had with him and I've never shared this before I'll share with you and now with the world um, <clears throat> several years ago uh, I went from a career high to a career low hmm. and that was of course devastating because that's what I put a lot of my identity into was mm-hmm. my ability to make money hmm. and um, at that career low I was uh, walking down the stairs to the subway. 
and fortunately I was on the opposite end. The train comes in the other end, and by the time it gets to me, it slows down. And I thought, wow, it'd just be so easy just to jump in front of the train. But it's going to slow down before it gets to me. It's just going to hurt. Hmm. And I was listening to, now this is, this is funny, I was listening to a podcast, and it just happened to be Joe Rogan. And now he's, I, I know throughout the world he's popular or not popular, whatever, but put that aside for a moment. He was talking about Anthony Bourdain. Hmm. And he was friends with Anthony Bourdain, who had killed hmm. himself. And he said, why didn't he just reach out? Hmm. You know, why didn't he talk to somebody? And that was the first word I heard. On the, and the train's coming, and, and I've got this on my headphones, and, and I hear this, why didn't he tell somebody? I'm like, tell him what? I didn't know. I didn't, I hardly knew who Anthony Bourdain was. Hmm. But I, who's he talking about? And I step back, and I think it was like a moment of divine intervention. And I sat there and listened. I got to hear the rest of the story now. What's he talking about? Why didn't he, why didn't who tell, you know, what's mm-hmm. going on? Mm-hmm. I listened to the story and then it was so like, it was such a moment for me that then I found out a few minutes into the show that Anthony Bourdain had killed himself. And I thought, I was just thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And then I heard this. And I've always thought of myself as a really resilient person. I'm very positive. Um, I think you know, I tell myself I'm very resilient, um, but human, right? Mm. I'll silence my phone. You know, only human. And uh, mm. boy, that that experience really, you know, hit me. And I thought, wow, that that must be divine intervention. That's amazing. And so, a few threads through my life, you know, this, um, you know, I had that thought, and then my friend, and then um, uh, Alexander. Dimitrenko posted on uh, LinkedIn hmm. about the upcoming 50th anniversary of Tell. And after my friend committed suicide, I thought, I want to talk to somebody. There must be a mental health professional in Tokyo who's willing to talk to me. And, and not for counseling, but to, to kind of get the word out. You know, you're not alone. And that there is help. There is hope, you know. And, and, and come to find out there's Tell, and there's much more than I even imagined in, in Japan, you know. And so... It was several months later, actually, about nine months later, and I, and I thought, well, I want to talk to somebody, and I have this podcast, I have this platform to talk about interesting things and get the word out about things, and there are much bigger hosts in the world than me, but I have something they don't. I'm in Tokyo. <laughs> I have access to guests they don't. So, um, so when Alexander posted that, you know, upcoming 50th anniversary of Tell, post on LinkedIn, I reached out to him immediately. They said, hey. Who do you know I can talk to? And here we are. So I know that was a huge stream of consciousness and probably a lot to unpack, but I'll hand it over to you. Well, first thing I'll say is thank you very much for sharing about your friend and yourself as well. That takes a lot of courage and for being willing to talk about this topic. I have been banging on about this topic since 2008. Um, when I tried to bring across programs from Australia to Japan on suicide awareness. Mm -hmm. Because as I was saying, um, I was absolutely blown away. I couldn't believe that there were 100 people every day that were taking 
their lives. You think about that, right? It was 33,000, 35,000. And you think about all of the people who are impacted by the loss of that life, never mind the life that is lost and their future that is gone, right? So the impact of that each year, right? And that was going on for several decades, right? That just blew my mind away. And when I first started trying to talk about mental health in combination with this issue, I would get booed out of a room because people oh. wanted to believe that the reason for the high suicide rate in Japan was it is the samurai way. They wanted to believe it was a lack of uh, Christian religion or some other religion. It's the samurai way. It's an honourable way. That's just a myth. It's not the truth. And in fact, it is the the lives lost, all the families are not feeling it's an honour, right? Those that, are, that survived the, an attempt, they're not feeling it was an honourable way out. That's just a way that we like to imagine a more comfortable conversation around this topic rather than thinking about well, what can be done how do we support these individuals what's my role in it could I have done something about it so Japan's come a long way since then it has uh, written white papers on the topic we have dropped the number here to I think this year it's 21,188 I think that's the number of lives that's lost. That's still an incredible number of lives that are lost, but it is down at least 10,000 or so. What is a little bit disturbing with those numbers, though, is that it's a little, it's an increase uh, f- over the last few years following COVID, and we're seeing an increase in youth suicides in Japan and in particular around women. Now, that's not to say that women are the largest group that are taking their lives, right, or are dying by suicide. They are just, there's just an increase in in the ratio of these, right? So by far the largest group um, that um, are dying by suicide is uh, the elderly, and then within that, men, right? So when we think about these topics, there's, there's a lot of things that we can look at. So the, the support that we might be offering to an elderly person or to a man might be very different to what the support that we need to offer a young person or uh, maybe a female. And it's learning about what, what are those warning signs that someone might be having Uh, that might indicate that they are thinking of ending their life and what can we do to support them and how do we have better conversations around mental health because that's the other part of the problem and that's not just unique to Japan but the other part of the problem is that if I have a mental mental health problem I'm weaker if I have a mental health problem I have failed in some way. If I have a mental health problem, I've let everybody down, right? If I have a mental health problem, I'm not going to have a good future, right? Mm. So that's the, the, the thoughts that go through a person who's got a mental health problem. And because they're not talking about it, 
how does anybody know what they're thinking about, right? How does anybody really give them that support that they need, right? If I had a physical health problem, so I often like to give a couple of analogies. So let's say I have a physical health problem and I have diabetes. I, I might go and get the insulin, right? But if I don't change my eating behaviors and my lifestyle behaviors, I'm fighting against the insulin that I'm being given. So, so if somebody actually even went and got the medication, right? You know, uh, they also need that that support to help them change their thinking behaviors or their um, their lifestyle behaviors, so that they can become more resilient, right? But then the other part of the conversation might go something like, "Well, I don't think you should take medication." Medication is, you know, a sign of weakness. Medication is going to make you feel drowsy or not good, right? And we'll go, yeah, yeah, don't take that medication. Or you're too weak, you've taken that medication. Then I'd say the answer, uh, then my response to that would be, well, what if I had cancer? Or what if I did have the diabetes? Would you tell me not to take the insulin? You would tell me to take the insulin. If I had cancer, I'm going to have to have chemotherapy or radiotherapy. Are you going to tell me not to take it? It's going to have terrible side effects. No. You're going to say, no, you need to get it. We'll do this together. We'll get through this together. But when someone has a mental health problem, we even put shame on the treatment options. Right? So how is someone who is struggling with confidence, who is already feeling that they're a failure, going to reach out and actually advocate that I need this support? And even if they are getting that counselling support, who's helping them? Like you would with the cancer or the other things, right? So it's a very isolating condition, right, where you are vulnerable and you're not getting that support and you're not talking to others about the miscommunication in your head because more often than not the script goes something like this i am a failure i am a burden people would be better off without me if i am not here i won't be that burden to them it will be a blessing for everyone and it's kind of where it gets to, right? You can't see the way out. You can't figure out a problem by yourself. And you think that the it is not going to improve. Therefore, let's, let's help everybody out here. Mm. Right? So for your friend, oh. he was going through a loss. Mm. A loss of his income, a loss of a house, a loss of... You know, feeling that failure of, I've let everybody down. He doesn't want to be a burden to you. He doesn't want to be a burden to his wife or to others, right? Many think that if they take their life and maybe there's a payout on a life insurance, they'll be better because they'll get this money, right? How often, you spoke yourself about the Mm -hmm. loss of a job, right? Mm -hmm. How often, particularly men, do they associate maybe the status of their job or the income that they earn with their sense of wealth? If you were to ask any spouse or any child of someone who took their lives, they would say the money is not important. The person is. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. But in those moments, we don't see our worth. Mm-hmm. We only see our failures. And we can't see what's on the other side. So, for example, not, not that I ever felt like taking my life, but when I had spent 12 years of my life studying to be a clinical neuropsychologist, there were very few women in that industry in Australia at that time. I had children, I had fought really hard to get that position, and then to lose it, you know, I was angry. I was really angry. And I made sure that everybody around me knew how miserable and angry I was. That was not my children's fault. That was not anybody else's fault, right? However, I would never have predicted that I would be the lifeline director. I would never have predicted that I could have an impact in other ways in the world if I'd never taken that course, if I'd never gone down this path, because you can't see the future. So true. At the time, you only see the loss and your failure and your hurt. So our ability to talk about these things, to talk about difficult conversations, and also our ability to say, no, I'm worried about you, right? So not just you can call me, but don't you do that. Mm. You've got to have that conversation that says, are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of ending yourself? Because I don't want you to do that, right? We can work on this. And maybe if you know the scale of the problem, you might have reached out to others, right, to get that back up. But we often don't, right? We often think, oh, we need to keep this conversation in a small group, that we've got to try and figure this out by ourselves. And you wouldn't do that with other conditions. No, if my friend had a broken leg, I'd take him to the ER. Correct, (laughs) right? Right. But we don't see the mental health problem. And lives are lost, Mm. right? 800,000 a year around the world, right? And I I think also, as somebody who had a friend in this situation, is there's this fear of being wrong. Yes. What if I say like, "Hey, are you thinking of suicide? Are you, you know, I don't want you to do this. I want you around." And he gets mad. And then, then the, the next thought, and I thought about this as I was preparing for this conversation, is that I'd rather have him be alive and mad at me. Yes, everybody. Correct. Everybody afterwards says those things, right? Mm. You know, right? You know, maybe they didn't want to go to the ER, but you'd have dragged them there. Oh yeah, right? You wouldn't have cared if they were screaming and kicking, no. right? No. You, you've got to keep them safe. Mm-hmm. And in those moments, they're not safe. Right? So somebody who has had a lot of recent losses, maybe a loss of a relationship, loss of a partner, loss of a job, loss of um, income, loss of a house, those sorts of things, loss of physical health, right? Um, they, they can become quite vulnerable. Someone who's had a suicide in their family, they are vulnerable. 25% of those who've lost someone to suicide within their family will take their lives as well. They've seen it. They've seen it as a way of coping, right? Or they're burdened by, I, I should have done something as well, right? So knowing those vulnerabilities, knowing those weaknesses, um, knowing those signs, 
that's where you can feel more confident about, hey, I need to ask this question, right? That's a mistake I'll never make again. Well, yeah. it's a mistake many of us make, right? Yeah. When we don't know something. Mm-hmm. So it's about educating ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a failure that you didn't do it, yeah. right? It's that you didn't know about it, right? Yeah. So you would know CPR, you'd know how, you know, if somebody was having a heart attack and you're going to be on the ambulance, you'd know yeah, these yeah. things. But we don't educate people about mm-hmm. mental health and that first aid that's required for somebody who's in those that high-risk categories, and parents need to know about this because we're seeing an increase in youth suicides and more importantly, 50% of all mental health problems have their first onset before we're 14 years of age and 75% will have their first onset before we're 24. So as parents, we need to know what this looks like so that when a young person has a mental health problem, they get the support that they need without feeling that they're a failure. So if the mental health problem reoccurs later in their life, they know how to get support. They have coping strategies. Instead, they learn the message, I wasn't good enough. I was weak. I'm vulnerable. I'm a failure. And there's that script that comes Uh. back to you time and time again in your life Mm. and do you have the coping skills or the resources or supports around you to get you through those difficult moments Mm. now not to toot my own horn but I I think one thing was that I was listening to a conversation that you know when I was on the platform it's curiosity got you know curiosity got the best of me what are they talking about and then um, I had a really good experience when I was a child. I was, uh, we were at a, um, a friend's cabin in the mountains and they, there was a lake and they had a boat and we were water skiing. All the other kids, it seemed, it, in, in my childish, my memory of my childhood, everybody else was a pro and I couldn't do it. I was guzzling water, like I'd fall face first into the lake and, it, you know, and um, I went back to the shore and I was crying. I don't remember how old I was and I told my dad, I can't do it. And he just put his hand on my shoulder and said, give it one more shot. And that experience, um, there was a time during undergrad, um, I just I just had a hernia surgery. And that's uh, it, not the back surgery, but like the, you know, tummy. And um, I had to finish, it was like December, I had to go to college to finish finals. And um, I remember walking up the hill and it was snowing and I'm already in pain, and and I don't do painkillers. They'd given me lower tab, and it was way too good. <laughs> so I, I decided not to take anymore. I said, I'll put up with this. I'm not going to take that because it's it's too fun. And so, um, and there's a history of that in my family. So, um, but I remember telling myself, like, someday this is going to be worth it. And I'm slipping up the hill, and, and I can feel my stitches, like, oh, <laughs> it, it was terrible. And then... Um, uh, the end of a major relationship, that memory came back of my dad, you know, give it one more shot. That worked out um, for the best. And then uh, law school, I had to take the, um, I think everybody knows this, I had to take the bar exam more than once. And once again, my dad's words came out, give it one more shot, buddy. Just give it one more shot. Hmm. And and the other one was, um, my daughter will probably never hear this. I have a, a, a daughter from a previous relationship and, 
should probably never hear this, but I thought, you know, when when that relationship ended, that marriage ended, um, I heard that kids tend to blame themselves, right? And I didn't want to put that on her, but it, there was too much going on to stay. You know, that this another long story for, for another time. But um, I also didn't want to put that on her of like, why did my dad kill himself? I didn't want her to be that kid in school that gets the news, like gets that phone call or gets called to the principal's office, hey, your dad killed himself, you know? And I didn't want her to ask the question like, was it my fault? You know, I didn't want to put that on her. And so those two things, my dad, and um, also there's a religious component. I grew up in, a, in a, um, a strong religious home in a religious community. And this also kind of colors my thinking on it that suicide was taboo. And if you, if you kill yourself, you go to hell. So you don't talk about it. And if somebody in the community did it, it never gets mentioned again. So my cousin's boyfriend, I want to say, never got brought up again. Um, and uh, so there's that. But I don't think that's enough to stop people, right? You know, God doesn't want you to, therefore, no. well, I better not, you know. No. Um, and I don't, mean, I don't mean to be flip. That's, um, I shouldn't talk like that. But um, the thing was like, you know, how's this going to affect my daughter? So I, I think I had the opposite thought of she would be better off without me. I had the opposite thought of she would be much worse off if I did this. And then my dad, and then the the talk show the podcast I was listening to you know um, and uh, so I, I don't know that I'm not saying that makes me better or smarter or stronger than anybody else just I, I think I'm really lucky right but sometimes more often than not when uh, someone dies by suicide they have been struggling with a mental health problem and depression and anxieties are the leading factors there so it's Perhaps you didn't have, you didn't, you know, I'm not sure whether you had depression at that time or not, but perhaps, you know, um, you had all those failures, but it didn't get to that level of struggling Mm. at that clinical level, right? Yeah, it was just a weird passing, I shouldn't say passing thought. I would, I don't know how to describe it. It just popped into my head. Right, so those fleeting moments. Whereas the person who's struggling with depression, it's an ongoing battle every day Mm. to get out of bed, to do things, to Mm. uh, find that energy to concentrate properly, to to, think about whether I'm going to eat or my sleeping patterns are impacted. It's it's an illness, right? Okay. And and I don't mean to make light of it. I, I guess... Um, may, maybe I'm here today because it wasn't to that level for you. I guess, yeah, for me, for me, yeah. Mm. And so, and um, but I, I thought it was relevant, so I brought it up. And right. Then, you know. But for many people, they they will have those mental health issues, and we don't know, we we don't see it. They get up and they go to work or they do things, and um, on that day to day. And they're not getting that message. Hey, look how brave you were that you got up. Like you was, you were saying like I, I, you know, I went back out on the the water and I did it, and I walked up the thing and I went to to my exams. Right? For the people who've got depression or struggling with anxiety, every day they walk out the door and they go, "I'm doing it," but they're not getting that message back that says, 
I, I look how tough I was. Look how successful it was. I didn't. They're looking at everything and saying, I didn't do it good enough, right? Look at, look at the mess-ups that I made along the way. But that's wrong. Every day, they're, they're little heroes walking mm. out there, right, fighting against these thoughts in their head mm. that are telling them that they're not good enough, mm. right? And there's so many studies out there that are saying that depression is one of the most debilitating conditions out there. But because we don't see it, we don't support those people or tell them just how fantastic they are doing by getting out there, getting out of bed, Mm -hmm. going to work, facing another day, right? Yeah. And in Japan... That stigma about mental health issues, about talking about these topics, is greater than in many other countries. Mm. So every country's got this stigma when it comes to mental health issues, but it's greater here. Mm. And that makes those barriers even harder to overcome. Uh, Yeah, you know, I I remember talking to a friend. uh, I had a bad day at work, and we're grabbing a coffee. I said, oh, you wouldn't believe my coworker." Japanese friend looks at me and says, why are you telling me this? So I just wanted to get off my chest. And I'm sorry for putting it on my friend. You know, you're not my counselor and I don't want to bring you down. But I, I had to get it off my chest. Mm. My friend looks at me, why are you telling me this? Mm. <laughs> I was like, however, okay. <laughs> Japanese <laughs> do like to talk about it because oh. we have thousands of them call out to a Notch No Denwa numbers. Oh. And we also have a number that quite a significant number that call our lifeline because they think that if they've got English capabilities that we are going to be more supportive of them. Mm. So this notion that Japanese people are, you know, tougher or they don't feel, that's clearly wrong because you just have to look at the suicide rate to know that mm. something's wrong here. But I guess the message that I would like to get across is that there is hope mm. and that somebody who has depression or anxiety There's treatment options out there and people do get better. They get better all the time. And you can't predict the future, just like Mm. I was trying to predict the future. You don't know where it's going to come. You were were talking about your job and your situation. Look at where you are now, right? Yes, you may have to go through some difficult periods, but you... Most of us will come out the other side mm. if we've got supports, if we've if we learn coping strategies. Mm. So that's the conversation that needs to happen. How do we support these people? How do we give them um, resources? And how do we develop coping strategies so that they do get better? Because they mm. do get better, and that's yes. the message people have to hear. That's a beautiful message. How are we doing on time? It's <laughs> like a perfect way to end. <laughs> it's midday. It's perfect. Well, Vicky, thank you so much. Wow, mm-hmm. this is this has been an amazing conversation. I'm I'm so glad I reached out to you, and thank you so much for your time and this, you know, letting letting me come here to your office to to do this conversation. You are welcome. I'm thank you for, as I said before, your openness to talk about this conversation i think that's a great starting point i hope that more people will talk about it because one of the best things that we can have is hearing from people who have been struggling with these thoughts who have been struggling with mental health problems and hearing your lived experiences and what can we do better to help these individuals 
that's what we're not hearing enough of in Japan, right? Mm. Many other countries are more advanced in this, so let's hear from people, right? Mm. You're not alone. Tell is here, our lifeline is here, our face-to-face counselling's here. We'll go out and talk to any school or community group that wants to learn more about these topics. Uh, there is Inochino Demo, which is a Japanese lifeline. There is Lifelink out there. There is There are supports out There's there. There's even the chat, right? Yes, yes, we do and phone and chat support. Outreach, at, was it Tell at Work? Did I read that yes, right? The yes, okay. and the community. And so the community, we, okay. we do it in the community as well as we do it for corporations. So there's support out there. Mm-hmm. If we can get that word out there about this topic, then reach out. Okay. And how can people who want to get involved maybe uh, answer the phone? How can they get involved? I really need support workers or volunteer okay. phone counsellors. Um, they can reach out on our website. We okay. have a, a annex training is in the, um, uh, the summer. I think it's okay. the end of May it starts. Uh, but we, in our 50th year, as I mentioned earlier, this year we are going 24 hours on the weekend, but we would like to be there 24 hours every single day mm. to do that. We need more volunteers. Mm-hmm. So you can learn great skills that will not only help others that are in need, but may they make you a our listening and our counselling skills make you a better person, a better partner, a better colleague, a better parent. So these are just good skills to have in general. And who wouldn't want to be better at that? Yeah. Right? So the 50th anniversary, April 1st. Yes. And uh, there's going to be a big event. Yes. At the Italian Embassy. Okay, Italian Embassy. So if you're in Tokyo... You've got one week left to buy tickets. <laughs> Get on it. It's nearly nearly booked okay. out. Then yes. that's great. And But there's also opportunities to donate as well, right? Absolutely. So donations play a huge role in the amount of people that we can support, the programs that we can offer in the community, um, the subsidized care that we can offer at the clinic... Mm-hmm. Those dollars make a difference. So while we are out there and we have been there for 50 years, we can't do this alone. We together, that's a, conver- that's a topic that I often uh, talk about, together, together with our crisis line, our clinic, our outreach, but together with the community, that's where we make a difference. Yeah. We all have mental health, like we have physical health. We can all make a difference, mm. and saving lives is something we can all do. And just like you said, that one person who um, uh, may decide to commit suicide impacts several lives around them. Yes. If you're alive, you impact lives around you. Right? Correct. We can make a difference. Zero suicides is possible, mm. right? We don't have to create some new treatment option. Yeah. We just need to have better conversations mm. and know how to get people the care that they need when they need it. Yes. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. It's been amazing. Thank you for talking about this topic. Thank you for listening to this conversation today. I hope I treated the topic with the reference it deserves. I'm only human, sometimes I make mistakes, and fortunately Vicky was very understanding with me. Remember, if you reach out, people will be understanding with you. You can get the help you need. You're not alone. 